This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. There are social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas, and the app supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is about 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover fees for accounts valued at over $150. Some fine print, valid for U.S. residents 18 years and older, and subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today, where we talk about all things fintech. In this episode, I am joined by an early stage founder who has a lot of experience in fintech, but is on to her new venture, and they just raised funding recently. I am honored to have Stephanie Kirkpatrick of Orem on the podcast today. Stephanie, how are you? Julie, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Great. Okay. So we have a lot to dive into. You guys just closed a funding round though. So let's do like a quick TLDR of what you raised and what Orem is. Yes. So let's start with what Orem is. Um, first of all, we dream about money moving instantly all day long. So our vision is that money becomes smart, real time and fully automated. So that's kind of how I want the world to, uh, to end up. And at Orem, we're building embeddable infrastructure, right? So we're enabling real time money movement um, through two products. Our debut product called Foresight is the first of its kind pre-auth for ACH. So think credit card swipe in terms of security, um, but for things like paying a mortgage or sending money to your brokerage account um, or even moving money through Venmo, things like that. And then we actually just announced as a part of our fundraise, the launch of Momentum, which is our API-based real-time payments platform. Momentum is to money movement what Amazon is to same-day delivery. You don't know how it gets there. We just make it instant and you never have to think again um, about how the transaction is going to happen. And that is super important for engineering teams, for fintech platforms, for banks, for lenders, anybody who's looking to move money to make it super simple. Um, so that's what we're up to. In terms of the round, and we're excited to announce that um, Bain Capital Ventures, Matt Harris, uh, led our Series A. Uh, so very exciting. Very cool. Um, and you guys, it's been about a year since you guys officially started, right? You were incubated inside of Inspired Capital for a while. You know the founder of Inspired, Alexa Van Tobel, from your days at LearnVest, where you were very high up over there. For those that don't know, LearnVest was one of the very first big fintech acquisitions. Um, so you have a, a good amount of experience in this space. But about a year ago, you officially like dove into Orem, correct? Or is my timing off a bit? Your timing's close. So it's been about a year and a half. Uh, since we started Orem. And as, as all founders will tell you, like the first year almost doesn't count. 
Um, because so much of it is figuring out your problem, your product market fit, building your team. And it goes so quickly, you can't even believe that that, that much time has gone by. It's sometimes hard for me to remember uh, that it's been that long, but yeah. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that with FinTech today. It's like, okay, it's a newsletter, but it's going to be a bunch of other things too. Like we need to take some time to figure out what other things it can be. So I'm I'm right there with you. Just not quite as big of scale as what Orem is yet. Well, you're catching up um, <laughs> so with the with your funding, let's talk a little bit about going through this race because we're in a very unique environment right now where there's certain startups where it just feels like there's so much money out there for them and I I would assume that you have a lot of VCs that are coming in saying like, hey, we can give you this much money. Here's our big idea for Orem. And you get some conflicting advice and stuff in there too. Even from the ones that you accept, there might be ideas that Matt has that someone else like Satya from Homebrew doesn't agree with as much. I feel like those two do agree a lot, but you get the point where there might be some that are like, nah, I think we should do this first or let's focus on this instead. So how do you take that into account? Such a good question. I will say your read is right. Matt and Satya and Alexa, who are sitting on the board of Orem um, and who are all three investors in the company from Homebrew, from Inspired Capital, and from Bain, are, are pretty consistent, right? And I think the reason for that is because we looked for investors who are going to be either stage specific. So Alexa wrote the inspiration check, which was pre-seed. Satya led the seed, um, and he's very seed stage focused as a fund at Homebrew. And they've been featured here before. And so I think the audience probably knows that. And then Matt Harris is very deep fintech. And not just fintech, but payments and infrastructure and SaaS. So each of those, you know, brings like a very specific lens to how we're going to build the business. Um, and as a result of that, there is actually a lot of consistency. And I think when you manage your investors really well um, and you're managing your board, you're not asking for permission. You are asking for input on strategy, but you as the CEO are driving the direction and you have to be really maniacally focused on the business you want to build and not be easy, easily distracted by the ideas of others or even by what's happening in the competitive landscape. Um, so I would just say, you know, you do get conflicting advice, um, but less so actually from your insiders and more so from people that want to get into your round or your next round or think they can be helpful. And so I think um, it's really as you're fundraising about meeting people who you think are going to back you all the way. And they're not going to supersede your decisions. They think your vision and your ability to build this is, is on the right track. And that they support the phase and the type of business you're building, because that's when you're going to get the most consistent and high value advice from your investors. What about when it came to raising? Were there people that said you shouldn't be raising right now? You should have raised earlier. You should wait to raise until you have even more traction. You've got this second product momentum really going. What about with that front? Because I think that's something that I might not have realized in my days as a reporter. That is something that comes up. But as a co-founder now, figuring out when exactly is the right time to raise, it's not an easy question to answer most of the time. You know, when to raise is a really delicate question. And I think because the fintech market's been really hot, people feel like they should just go out there with a big idea and a great pitch deck. And I actually think the opposite is true. Just like you would in any other type of business, you really want to prove that it's going to work. And to do that before you raise, you need to have a thesis. You need to have a proof of concept or working prototype on your product. And you need to have early customers they don't have to be paying customers, but there has to be traction in the market for it really to work for you to go out and raise. And I think the folks that do it the other way, who just jump in with the deck, and, and yeah, you can do it that way. You set yourself up for a very hard first one to two years in which the ability to make or break your business is very high. Um, when you have traction, when you have proof points, 
you are going to do a lot of hard work in figuring out how to manage that traction, how to build the best things. Um, but that early conviction from the marketplace puts you in a much better spot in terms of raising with the right investors. Again, I think you know there is an opportunity to get checks from lots of funds and there's lots of people hungry to offer up capital right now. And that can be really tempting. Um, but I think it's also, it's just about building the fundamentals. Raising money is not what you're here for. You're here to build a business. And to build a business, you have to be fundamentals focused. You have to be thinking about product market fit. And you actually have to be thinking about, can this eventually make money and how will it make money? And does it sustainably make money for the long run before it makes sense to go out and convince investors um, to write a check? Since you were founded a year and a half ago, have you only raised money virtually? <laughs> that is that is actually true. Um, <laughs> all of our fundraising during COVID, and you know we didn't have very much money in the bank in the spring of last year when this when COVID became our reality. Um, but we did have a working prototype of our first product, Foresight, and we did have the beginning of traction that suggested we should go out and raise. And um, we've now been through uh, two rounds of fundraising, a seed and a series A, in which we haven't met a single investor, um, which sounds crazy. And I know Matt Harris would tell you we're the only uh, fund that or the only company that he's ever invested in in this way. But I think it also speaks to, you know, how big the problem is, right? We're solving something that's a $62 trillion problem and growing every year. And the idea that money should move as fast as possible, i.e. in 10 to 15 seconds, that's not like new age thinking. That's where we absolutely need to be as, as an industry. Um, and it's what's right for American households and American wallets. So I think that that certainly played into kind of how fundraising went down. But I was living through fundraising on Zoom while the investors were too, right? So many of the first conversations, people were not clear on how it was going to feel over Zoom for them either. So I think everyone was kind of in it together. And now, whether it's my board meetings, which I actually have one later today, um, or it's you know fundraising, or it's just strategic partnerships work, Zoom feels supernatural. I'm almost scared to have to go do it in person because it will feel so different than how we did it initially. <laughs> uh, I sat in on a few pitch meetings when I was consulting for a venture capital firm this summer. And one of the questions that one of the partners liked to ask companies, I'm going to ask you now. So what thesis are you and Orem betting on that has to be true? And if it's not true, Orem's not going to work. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, we're betting on the fact that consumers want their money to move as fast as they want to get an Uber, order a meal, have same day delivery, if not faster, right? It's true right now that you could get a massage on demand in your apartment in pretty much every city um, in the US via an app. And it's still going to take five days to get your own money from Wells Fargo to, let's say, Fidelity, let alone Robinhood or, or some, some new age platform. And I'm pretty sure that consumer the consumer need here and the demand is not going anywhere. Um, so that's the bet we're making, right? That money should be instant, the consumers want it to be instant, and that by virtue of that demand, um, everything we're working on is, is going to be pulled into the market. And we're seeing that already with a pipeline of over 130 customers, a massive wait list to get access to what we're building. The demand is, is definitely showing itself. So since, like you mentioned, we can get a massage within minutes in our own city via an app, what have been the biggest roadblock? Like, why don't we have fast money movement already? And how is Orem fixing that? You know, I was surprised, actually, when I dug into this problem, because as a certified financial planner, most of my career and the tech I was building at LearnBest was about figuring out what you should do next with your money. And I saw literally millions of Americans 
not ready to do something as simple as put money into emergency savings, which might be in like a higher yield separate account. Because on a Saturday, if they had an emergency, they couldn't get access to two or three or $400, right? The most innovative thing on a Saturday is an ATM. And that's like maybe going to get you 500 bucks out of the ATM cash, right? So it's this concept of access. And so I think the roadblock has been really two things. I think for a long time, the banking industry built what served them, which is a nine to five, five day a week operation and nothing more. And I think secondarily, honestly, the advances in machine learning, which is a huge part of what we're building at Orem, the advances in data science and the intelligence layers, the ability to instantly KYC a customer, instantly know who's on the other side of a transaction, that's all relatively new technology. Even in the last two to three years, it's accelerated. So I think it's three vectors, right? It's the idea that there's a system that only favored banks and we're tired of that. There's all this pressure from all the other instant economies that have been created, like news is breaking by the minute on Twitter and still my money is not in my hands when I need it. Um, and then I think just the advances in tech that today make it possible when a decade ago at LearnVest, we would have dreamed of doing this and we couldn't have because the tech wasn't ready. Right. You mentioned the tech and I want to dive into that just a little bit because one of the big questions that we've had about the space payments in general um, is that there's a lot of old school tech in this space. So trying to make things move faster, be more efficient, do you build on top of that tech and figure out how to work with it? Or do you have to tear things out and like start from scratch? Whereas I think this is a big reason that China is so far in advance of us because they really didn't have a system and then they built it later than we did and they could build this more advanced system, right? So what are your thoughts on that since you are like a payments nerd, know this space way better than I do and most of our listeners do? Well, let's say, let's just look at the landscape for a second. So the Real-Time Payments Network, which is the newest way to move money, launched in 2019. And the goal um, by the clearinghouse was to get it to all 11,500 financial institutions by the end of the year. There's currently about 25 banks that can send and receive on real-time payments, and it's spring of 2021. So what that tells you is that ripping out and changing infrastructure is very hard. It's very high cost, and it's going to be very slow moving. So the way we thought about things at Orem is to say, let's build smart, least cost routing. Let's build kill switches and let's build decisioning that sits on top of today's framework that indexes on and favors new modern rails or new solutions, um, but allows people, uh, banks, you know, fintechs, et cetera, to stay on the existing infrastructure they have and add API calls in the right places. So they don't have to rip out their core banking platform. Our product is core agnostic. If they need real-time ledgering, we will, we will provide the real-time ledger and we'll marry to a batch-based system in the morning when banks come online. So we really thought about closing gaps because um, after LearnVest was acquired uh, by Northwestern Mutual about six years ago, I sat inside a Fortune 100 company and I saw that you cannot rip out infrastructure, right? It just doesn't work. You have to slowly, thoughtfully use the technology that exists to move towards a new direction. And I think at Orem, our thesis is that not only do consumers want money to move instantly, um, banks and enterprises actually want that too. They just had a big roadblock in getting there. And we make it easy by sitting higher up in the stack from the perspective of simplicity of cores and other originating systems. But we add all the bells and whistles that streamline the decision making for how money should actually move optimally on all the different types of rails that we have today. So it's easing our reliance on a 50-year-old ACH system without actually saying you need a 50 to $500 million upgrade to get to the new product. 
Yeah. So who are some of the companies that you guys are working with right now on your initial product? Yeah. So actually, I'll tell you a little bit about um, one of my favorite companies that we're working with. It's a, a banking platform, digital platform called One. Um, I often say One Finance, sorry, to the One team, um, but I have to clarify internally when we just say the word One all day long what that means. Um, but One is one of the most intriguing um, digital banking platforms because unlike Chime and some of the others who really went after the underbanked, one has looked at the kind of broader ecosystem and said, what about everybody else, right? It's amazing to go get underbanked to become banked. And that is a great place to play. But people like me, people like you, Julie, I'm tired of the things that I get from Wells Fargo, right? I'm tired of things at Bank of America. Like they're not meeting me where I am. And I want to go back to having one account that can kind of blend a lot of my needs. And so with one, it's been super interesting because as we've been partnered with them on our first product foresight, you know, they want to help their customers access funds instantly too. So we've been able to use Foresight to accelerate dollars into brand new accounts as they're getting opened or with recurring ongoing transactions. Um, and now we're looking at how can we help money move via real-time payments and momentum, our smart routing system, in a way that's even more effective than just using ACH and Foresight. Um, but I think this idea that like challenger banks or digital banks were only for a certain population is actually broken. And the way that they've thought about their build, which is very infrastructure specific, they sit on a really specific core FINS Act, where they control a lot of their decision making, they're going to build a really, and they already have built a really incredible product um, that suits the likes of kind of the everyday, you know, mid-market American household in a way that's really unique um, compared to what you can get from a traditional bank today. So as a founder that has operated her company mostly virtually, uh, remotely so far, what are the biggest benefits and the biggest struggles both personally and for your entire team in this environment? Well, I never thought that I'd be building a company from my five-year-old's bedroom, but here we are. Um, and I think the fact that I'm in my five-year-old's bedroom and everyone else is in their kitchen or their bedroom, or maybe they're hiding in the bathroom today. Um, it puts us all on like a level playing field as a company, as we build partnerships, right? Kids screaming in the background is no longer uh, a tragedy on Zoom. It's, it's actually a comedy and, and it really humanizes us. So to that end, I think the idea that like we've made inroads with incredible partners that maybe I would have had to fly cross country for, um, which just would have made it you know inefficient as a startup to get such great customers early days. That's been great. We've built a team fully remotely, so there's no Orem office, there's no home base, uh, there's no power center. Um, and actually, more than 50% of the team is not in the New York area, even though I am currently, and perhaps I won't stay. We'll see. Um, but it's really been awesome to hire like absolutely best-in-class talent in places like Ohio, where you normally wouldn't have gone hunting for great payments leaders or great tech folks, and they're everywhere. Um, we have the most incredible diverse team. We're over 50 percent female, over 50% non-white. And I don't think I could have pulled that off, even as much as I care about diversity, if we'd all been centered in one or two big cities. Um, so it just makes the company richer, like better ideas, more problem solving, you know, more ways to think about taking taking over the world of payments, really. Um, and for me personally at home, you know, I can get in five miles on the Peloton treadmill um, or my SoulCycle bike before work starts. And I've kind of traded what was, you know, two hours a day of commuting for like health and fitness and time with my family. I can kiss my kids goodnight every night or eat dinner, you know, around the kitchen table with them in a way that honestly building a startup, I probably couldn't have. So it's, it's been great on that level. I'd say, you know, we've been really lucky because we've made a ton of investment in being remote forward. 
But if somebody's having a hard day, like you can't go over and just check in, right? And being remote means we don't see everything. And so we focus a lot on building team rapport, on doing events together, on just silly stuff. Like every Monday at Orem is theme day. It started with like black t-shirts, which felt safe, right? Everyone has a black t-shirt probably. And like, it's literally gone the gamut of like your favorite concert background, your favorite concert t-shirt. Yesterday was um, animal themed and people were like, not just wearing, you know, classic cheetah print. They were literally like in zoo backgrounds or with like animal faces on. Just fun, right? We just want to fun. You want to build a company where yes, the problem you're solving is like crazy big and you're crazy focused on that. But the humans that you're with every day, like they're the magic, really. What about as a female founder and a mom? How ha- I mean, you've been high up at a company before, but this is your first official like founding of a company. Um, how how have you thought about that? Because I think it's something I personally think about a lot as well. There's like extra complications being a female that has kids and whatnot, um, trying to start a company which takes a lot of your time, your energy, your mental strength everything. It takes all those things and more as does being a mom. Um, and there is no balance, right? I think if you're looking for balance, you're using the wrong word. I would say, look for equilibrium because I knew that I wanted to have a big career and I ultimately knew I'd want to found a company and I didn't know when, um, and I didn't know how old my kids would be or that there, there is no perfect time. Right. Um, and if you're, if your dreams aren't scary, they're big enough. So like it is scary to build a massive payments company, to be a parent, to try to be present in all places. But I had great mentorship throughout my entire career. Um, Alexa Von Tobo, obviously at LearnVest, uh, was a huge part of that in terms of seeing how she managed a transition and an acquisition of the company while pregnant. I was pregnant at the same time. We've been through a lot, but I also had a great mentor who was the COO um, of LearnVest. Her name is Ainsley who already had three kids. She was like the first grown up that came to learn best, you know, probably the only person over 40 for a long time. And I looked at her and I said, I want to build a company where everybody looks like that. And so at Orem, actually, most of us are parents. Um, Very few people are like, you know, 26 and, um, you know, in their early phases of their career, not because we don't value young, amazing, growing talent, but I think because we've built a culture where being a parent is core to who we are. And just like everyone else in the company, I have to get offline at six o'clock to do what I call the nanny dash to run downstairs and, you know, relieve the person that's been part of my, you know, support system all day. And um, I'll just tell you, like, no matter how scary, no matter how big it sounds, you can do it. And it's about supporting yourself in the right way, having a great partner. Couldn't do it without my husband uh, and my mom, um, who really like pinch hits on all fronts. And I think just remembering that being a female, being a mom, being a parent, it's all, it's going to be there no matter how big your job is. So you might as well take the biggest thing that you want for your own career and chase it with your whole heart. That is such a good way to end this episode too. <laughs> uh, I almost see like your eyes tearing up a little bit saying all of that too. It's like something you can tell, like you're passionate about both what you're starting with Orem as well as being the best mom, the best wife possible um, that you can be. So uh, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us today. It was an honor to have you. Um, That is it for today's episode of Tux Time, though. Join me again later in the week, though, when Wiza Jalakasi from Chipper Cash in Africa is with me. Um, Otherwise, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and I will see you next time. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Julie.